Warning, the following podcast may contain graphic content, language, sexual nature that some may find offensive. Listening discretion is advised. Hey everybody, it's Tommy Canale and welcome back to Before the Lights podcast, the show that tells you how they made their mark. She is a mother, wife, speaker advocate, and a survivor, a Greeley, Colorado native that was a victim of sexual assault at the age of 20. She has been featured on major news networks such as CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, and several online and print publications. It is my honor to welcome to the show, Kimberly Corbin. Kimberly, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, this, I am honored. I was able to see you at CrimeCon Vegas with Steve Wilkos and was absolutely moved by your story and had to come up and meet you and get you on the show for my listeners to hear your story and see what we can do to bring more awareness to this horrible, horrific crimes. Yeah, thank you. That's a, it's definitely the aim of everything that I do and why I started sharing my story in the first place. Let me start here. Who was Kimberly prior to May 2006? So I actually grew up in Greeley, um, very involved in sports, clubs, you name it, um, active in everything through high school, went to college in um, the fall of 2004, wanted to just be a college student, which had lasted an entire uh, semester before I started getting involved in more stuff. And so um, one of those things was joining a sorority and I made my best friends there. I was going to school um, to do business marketing and advertising. I was happy, energetic. I'd say um, not sheltered, but I lived in a bubble for sure. Um, I mean, I was going to college in my hometown, but it, it was um, it was really a very happy childhood, happy upbringing. Um very competitive when it came to sports, um, was heavily involved in those all growing up. And I would say just, um, I don't know if tenacious is necessarily <laughs> the right word, but definitely there. If somebody tells me I can't do something, I'm going to prove them wrong. <laughs> all right. You attended the university of Northern Colorado. Mm -hmm. Did you know that you were being stalked or somebody was watching you at all? Did you have any indication? I had no idea. And actually, this is something that we didn't find out until many years after the conclusion of the case. Um, on It was the spring of 2006. We had had a Greek week mixer downtown, and I had no clue that someone had come up to my roommate and I apparently tried to dance with us. And we sort of did the creeper shuffle away <laughs> where, you know, that's, you just you get that feeling about mm -hmm. some people but nothing that stands out in my mind. Um, and I guess we offended this guy so much by saying no, that he followed us home and stalked us for the next week. So you were being stalked, didn't even know it. And then on May 12, 2006, the day that completely changed your life, this, I don't even have a name for this human being, but this person broke into your apartment in the early morning hours. You were sleeping. How were you awakened? I had gone to bed the evening before at around, well, one thirty in the morning. Um, and I was awoken because I was laying on my stomach and felt like I couldn't breathe. So I tried to push myself up 
out of my bed and was pushed back down. And I felt like I was suffocating, like uh, I can't get enough air. The breath was hot on my face. And I hear this slow taunting voice of this man that's in my room. Um, and that is seared in my mind forever. How are you able to either see him or identify or be able to tell the police what this gentleman looked like? So he kept my face covered for the duration of the assault and afterwards. I had tried to come up with every lie that I could think of to get him to move it or to get me space to get away from him. Um, I had lied and said that I was um, that I had an STD, that I had to go to the bathroom, that I was claustrophobic. And two times he moved the shirt just enough that I was able to see from his mid calf down. And the other time when he was on top of me from about the mid bridge of his nose up. Um, I had a little bit of morning light coming through the blinds in my apartment room and I could see his face, um, just that, that portion of it illuminated by that blue hue of the morning light. And it was like staring into the eyes of pure evil. You were held for two hours after this horrific crime. Mm -hmm. Did you think he was going to kill you? Oh, absolutely. Um, I had no reason to believe that he wouldn't. He knew a lot about me, my roommate, my boyfriend, where I worked, all kinds of things. He was clearly willing to break in in the middle of the night, hold me there and rape me. Why wouldn't he kill me? Um, so I absolutely thought that that was how I was going to die. And it just kicked into survival mode and did everything I could think of to survive. For the two hours that he held you there, you had talked with Steve that you guys were having some conversations. Mm -hmm. Were you leading these conversations? Was he, and what were you talking about or trying to get information from him? So when he finished his assault, I figured that that's the point where he's going to kill me. And so instead of um, laying there waiting, I started talking to him. I don't remember the first thing that I said to him, but I knew I let it off with a, it's okay. You know, I'm not going to tell anybody and tried to make him feel at ease, as weird as that sounds. Um, we talked about everything from, you know, him being really popular in high school and associating with gangs and having a girlfriend and the girlfriend broke up with him because he had another female roommate and um, what my boyfriend thought about me living with a guy, even though I didn't, which was a lie that I just ran with because I knew that one of my other roommates was asleep across the hall. And as, as we talked I kind of wanted the conversation to stop once I saw that the sun is actually rising. It is becoming um, very bright morning outside. And so what I had started as leading and trying to get information, I was then trying to end. But as it got closer and closer, I was worried that he was at that point going to kill me. And so I set a false deadline where I said that my roommate's parents were coming up to pick her up mm. and he left me and he had asked for a drink of water before he left. And I sent him to the wrong cabinet knowing that I had been cleaning the night before. So he went out, opened the cabinet door, closed it, opened another one, got his drink of water. And then I heard my front door open and shut. The four fear responses are flight, fight, freeze, and fawn. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like you went through all four? You know, I had always thought that I would be able to fight someone off. I mean, being pretty athletic and um, now knowing what, his physique was, I probably could have put up a really strong fight, but without being able to see, I was at a disadvantage. 
So I did freeze at first. Um, and then once that freeze response served, I mean, it kept me alive for that point. I started almost fawning by telling him that, you know, everybody makes mistakes and it's okay. And um, that conversation was a way of basically stroking his ego while telling him, I, I promise I'm not going to say anything and, and your secret's safe. And, you know, not quite to the point where, oh, this was my fault or something like that. But all of the things that I could think of to say, oh, you picked you picked the right victim. It's okay. And actually he picked the wrong person. And we'll, no, it was we'll, the exact opposite. Right? <laughs> we'll, we'll get to that. And listeners, we're going to be playing a clip here shortly from Kimberly's actual 911 call that is absolutely chilling. But before we get there, Kimberly, can you speak to my listeners about the mindfulness and awareness that you had to preserve DNA evidence? You talked about you sent him to the wrong cabinet to get fingerprints. What else did you do? Um, so when I was watching out the window, when I heard my front door click open and close, I was watching out um, the two-inch opening in my blinds to see if he might run by there. Um, I was cataloging everything from that two-second glimpse of his face to um, how how heavy his body felt on top of me to get his weight. Um, when I saw his shoe size, I memorized the way that he uh, tied his shoes and what he had for for socks. Um, everything from his voice patterns um, to trying to triangulate based on all of these things that he was was saying, where he might have gone to school or what he might have. Um, experienced growing up so that we could sort of track him down afterwards. I I mean, when I lied and said that I had an STD, I was hoping to get him to go in and get tested. Now I know HIPAA rules would have protected that information. But at the time I'm thinking, oh, can we check and see if somebody went to, to clinics or if it was somewhere at UNC and they're getting tested for this one specific thing that I lied about? Um, it was just anything that came to mind that would help me put together a picture of who this guy was for the police, because I had every intention of if I get out of this, I'm going to get revenge. And that sounds really messed up. But at the same time, I'm like, this is now a competition to me. You know, that sports mindset kicks in and you don't get to win. Um, this is someone telling me that they're going to take my life away from me and come back for me. And they know um, roommates, family, all of that kind of stuff. You, you don't get to beat me. In this. Uh, I think that that's probably what held me through at least until the end of that day when it was just like, okay, now I can almost shut down. So everything from the DNA collection, I walked along the side of the carpeting because the, his foot impressions were still in our freshly cleaned carpeting. Um, I made sure to use the tips of my fingernails to throw the deadbolt on um, so that he couldn't come back in. I peed into a cup. I made sure that the sweatpants that I put on before officers arrived were as baggy as possible, but able to absorb and keep the DNA evidence that was still on my leg and stood on a towel and just waited and had all of this information racing through my brain that I had to hold on to. And in the midst of screaming and breaking down, I knew that that was going to be the way that, that we're going to catch this guy. So I would also like to provide your listeners with the same kind of trigger warning. Um, this call is really difficult to listen to. It sounds nothing like me today. This was in the couple of minutes following the worst experience of my entire life. It can be really triggering to listen to, even if it's something that you don't think will, will resonate. So 
please take your time. If you have to skip forward, um, do that. And there's a lot of hotlines and resources online um, as well. And please take advantage of those. Okay, what's going on? I was right. You were what? I was right. Okay, did the person that did this to you, are they still there? Okay, who, what, he just left? Yes, he's about, he's like five, eight, five, nine, Is he black, white, or Hispanic? He's white, he's wearing glasses, white tennis shoes on, and a black shirt. Black shirt and jeans? I don't know, I didn't use it. Okay. White tennis shoes. And white tennis shoes? Yeah. He just took off. Do you yeah. know this male? What? Do you know him? No, he knows my roommate. Kimberly, that just gives me chills, and I've listened to it a few times getting ready for this show. I'm sure it does worse for you. What I found by listening to this is exactly what you talked about. Somebody who's just gone through the most horrific thing in their life was able to give that kind of detail on the 911 call. Did you call right away or did you call across the hall for help from your roommates? How did that all happen? As I was watching out the window to see if he would run by, I reached up onto my bookcase headboard where my phone had been sitting alongside a hammer, a box cutter, screwdriver, all kinds of things that I was using to decorate my room the night before. And so I called immediately as I was talking to that dispatcher trying to get her our address. That's the most important thing. And I think people get frustrated because like, why are you asking about the address? They can't locate you and help you until they have an address and then they can assess the problem. Um, so people can be in route as you're finding out what happened. Um, I had gotten our address confused as had my roommate, but in that amount of time where I'm walking across the hall um, to where my other roommate was sleeping, I'm talking to the dispatcher and, um, so those things were happening simultaneously. So I woke her up immediately and she had been sleeping the entire time and didn't hear anything until the, the sink, um, the kitchen sink turned on and he was getting a drink of water. What made you decide to publicize that call and why publicize it? Um, I, I didn't really do it with the intention of publicizing it. I didn't, I also didn't realize how many people would, want to hear that. Um, originally I put it on YouTube because I have it as part of my keynote speeches where I provide adequate trigger warnings, where I have resources, where I'm going to talk about it and dissect it and bring that information to the attendees, but it wouldn't always play on my PowerPoint. So I put it on my own YouTube. Um, <laughs> and it was just set to private so I could access it. And then for the 10th anniversary I have no idea where this came from. And to my knowledge, it was the first time that it had been done on Twitter. But I decided to recount everything that happened on May 12th of 2006 in real time on Twitter. And so I worked on basically a tweet deck and went through every single thing minute by minute, included all of the stuff from my case files with multimedia and videos. And I decided to publicize that 911 call because as I'm speaking and doing this outreach advocacy, I find that it's really easy to forget the trauma that somebody goes through and just sort of brush over that because, you know, I'm, I'm well-spoken and put together and 
you know, I don't, I don't flinch when I talk about these things because I've had so much therapy and I've done this so many times, but that little 20 year old girl in that apartment was where this started. And I don't ever want people to lose sight of that. Can you speak to us about the trauma that you went through and the recovery and how you've gotten to where you are today? Yeah, that's a, that's a definitely a long conversation. (laughs) Um, I had never had any interaction with counseling, mental health diagnoses, issues like that. Um, I'd never taken anything more than Tylenol and to suddenly be thrust into this world of mental health and having to have these conversations in real time as I'm experiencing them, not just internally or with a therapist, but with my family, with my roommates, with my boyfriend, all of my support system. And again, this is 2006 when this is still pretty taboo subject to have these conversations. Then I realized was on the forefront of really taking hold of our mental health and assessing it as we would our physical health. And to bring everyone that I love along for that God awful up and down ride has actually proven to, to be really helpful in the long run. Um, the conversations that we had then versus now and the strength of our bonds together are just, they're, they're unbreakable. And it really makes me hopeful for the kids that are kids or folks that are just starting out and are recognizing mm-hmm. mental health as something that's viable, that doesn't have to be talked about behind closed doors, that it's something that you can be proud of, that you can take hold of and that you can address without the stigma. So I was diagnosed with PTSD pretty quickly, um, a generalized anxiety disorder and depression as I moved through the coming months or the following months after the assault. It wasn't until the following April that I I developed a seizure disorder. Mm. And this was during trial prep. Um, Basically, they're called psychogenic non-epileptic seizures related to PTSD. The huge mouthful that basically says the trauma that my brain is experiencing is so great that my body shuts down and it manifests looking like a seizure. So I still have some of the thrashing. I'm unconscious, but in my mind, I'm reliving that assault. And I had like claw marks on my face because in that time, I'm thinking that there's a shirt over my face multiple concussions because I'd just be standing or sitting talking and the next second be out and I would hit my head. And so all of those things together really derailed getting back on track in college and everything that I had worked so hard to come back from. It was like, it all came crashing down and my body's telling me you can't do another thing until you take care of yourself in a different way. Terrible as it was, it got me into a type of therapy called EMDR. It's eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, which was a fabulous way to help me work through my trauma. I wasn't always the best with with words, but when we're talking about physicality, I can connect my my brain to my physical movements and, and features. And I've found that this is really helpful for athletes as well. If you maybe don't want to talk about something, but you can do that bilateral stimulation with your brain and your body, there's a lot easier ways to work through that, or at least get to the point where then you can talk about or relive or rethink through things without feeling that, that trigger, that panic. um, And in my case, seizures. Let me back up just a little bit, because you talked about the trial. How long did it take to catch him and how did they catch him? 
Yeah. Um, it took exactly three weeks. Um, I had given them all of that information. I'd went back and forth for multiple interviews, let them know um, everything that I could possibly think of. I mean, we did some sleep cycles and then we went back and did it from in reverse. So like from the time you hear the door click, what was the thing before that? And then the thing before that. And so there's a lot of interview tactics that help people remember different, um, not, not to trip them up or get them wrong, but to help remember things in a different way, or maybe there's a different way that they can describe something that happened that will, will help. But on the other side, if you have a victim who maybe in, in my case, I knew it was a black and white crime and a line had been crossed, but for people who maybe have been drinking or it's an acquaintance, or they somehow feel that they are responsible for what happened, which of course we know they never are. It can be um, overwhelming and scary. And it, it could take on that feeling that they are the ones being questioned, that maybe they're the ones being investigated um, and thankfully for me, I didn't have that, that mindset, um, but I know how common it is because stranger assaults are not nearly as common as it is somebody who has a relationship and um, manipulates that relationship for this power and control over a victim. So it was three weeks to the day when two rookie cops right out of FTO contacted a male at a neighboring apartment complex about a half a mile away from mine. The manager had called and said that there's this guy that's in the gym and he's taking pictures of women that are out sunbathing. They contact him. He says that he can be there when they searched his property because they took him in on a trespassing charge. They found a video camera, much like the one that I had described being present at my assault and a bunch of women's underwear. They had me come down to the station, look through these, ask if I recognized any of them and I didn't. And I was joking. I was like, hey, those kind of look like my roommates. No, no, no. God darn. We thought we had, we, we thought we had something. They had me come back then later that night. And the detective had an idea. It's like, I want you to see if you can identify him. I was like, well, we couldn't do a sketch because I, I didn't see his entire face. I'm not going to be able to hundred percent do that. And he had an idea. He put headphones on me, turned me. So my back was to the camera and turned on the interview and so I hear the detective talking and then all of a sudden I hear that same low taunting voice that is seared in my brain and I lost it. I completely had a panic attack right there and it didn't matter how many people were in between me and him. And if they were armed, he said he was coming back for me. He's going to get me. They got me calmed down, took me out to my parents. And at that point they showed me a lineup, which I still said, I'm not going to be able to do it, but you have the right guy. I know that voice out of anywhere. It's a, it's a fairly distinct voice. And this is the guy I don't need to wait for DNA. It was the first night that I slept soundly. Um, somehow they got that processed really quickly. He came back with four positive DNA hits. And I think maybe don't quote me, but at least a couple of years ago, it was still the closest DNA matches that the CBI had had done. And there were four of them. That is outstanding. So you got, I was, you got your revenge. They got captured him, but then we have to go to trial, but be, somewhere in there, because a lot of women will not release their name to the media, but you chose to do that. I'm glad that I did it when I did. Um, a lot of times women will not release their names because a pending case has to be protected. When it's going through the justice system, you can't have a lot of pretrial publicity because immediately defense 
tactics are to jump on that and say, oh, we need to change a venue or, you know, you're you're trying to persuade a jury pool. And so there's a lot of things that go into feeling like you can't speak while these proceedings are going on. I was aware of that. And I knew um, I didn't I wouldn't say that I felt silenced, but I think a lot of people would if they did not have a case that they felt they were seeing justice or that was moving along the way that they wanted to. Um, I protected my identity, even though everybody in my entire you know, college and friend group and everything, they all knew who I was and what I had gone through. And it didn't necessarily bother me. I felt like I was supported and at least I didn't have to explain that like, Hey, I'm having a bad night. And it's mm-hmm. you no, know, not from drinking or something, but here's what's happening. Um, but the day that we got that conviction, uh, the reporter that I had been working with for the previous couple of weeks, she had taken a great amount of time and care to sit with me on multiple occasions and get my side of the story. And she came up to me and she said, okay, Kim, are you sure you want to do this? I said, absolutely. And so the next morning, it wasn't the black and white facts from an affidavit or from a court reporter. It was my name, my face, and most importantly, my story that was being told. Um, And that's what I wanted to resonate. They don't have to remember who I am, but I want you to remember my story. Uh, Lo and behold, that made a difference because I had done this with the intention of helping one person, just one person not have to go through what I did. And these these back-to-back articles ran on Saturday and Sunday in our local paper. Some of the Denver stations picked it up, which for us up here in, in Greeley, Colorado, is a big <laughs> deal. Yeehaw. Um, but on Monday morning, the district attorney's office, the same one that I've been working with, gets a call, one of the victim advocates, and it was a 78-year-old woman. She had a similar case going through the system at that time. Um, she had been sexually assaulted by a stranger. And to that point, she had been an uncooperative witness. She didn't want to testify. She didn't want to have anything to do with this. And she said, I read the paper this weekend. And if Kim can do it, so can I. And she got up on the stand that fall and put a serial rapist away for the rest of his life. So I didn't know that for quite a few years after, but it made that impact that quickly. And that's all I've wanted from this entire journey. This is my story. No symptoms to being diagnosed with colon cancer, which led to four surgeries, and a 50-50 survival rate. It then spread to my liver, in which only 3% are caught in time. Now, a 1% chance it ever comes back, and I'm on the road to inspiring everyone, because you have three choices, live, die, or fight. Bernie Siegel said, No matter what the statistics say, there's always a way. To book me, Tommy Canale, to speak to your event or group, go to TommyCanale.com. That's TommyCanale.com. And get ready to be inspired to inspire others because you're one day away from changing your life. You served as a key witness in the trial, which resulted in a sexual assault conviction, which is very rare, sentenced to 24 years. Can you speak to me about the difficulty of the trial and being cross-examined? Were they trying to 
challenge your credibility? Um, yes, that's, I mean, that's a common tactic too. It was a little harder because this was a complete stranger. When they did pick this guy up, he um, was four years older. He was a 4.0 criminal justice student at Ames Community College here in town. Um, and we had never crossed paths, complete and total stranger. So there off the bat, you have a statistically insignificant number. And then for it to go all the way through the system without um, reaching a plea, which sometimes is the best resolution for a lot of these cases, because I'll guarantee you what I had to go through on the stand, not everybody wants to, and that is okay. So let me ask you this um, and your listeners, let's, uh, let's put you in, um, in a frame of mind. I want you to close your eyes if you're listening to this. And I want you to think of your last consensual sexual experience in as much detail as you can. Now, when I say open your eyes, I want you to turn to the stranger next to you. And I want you to start in as much detail as you can describing that experience. Go. And you usually have people just, oh, my God, she wants me to do what? And yeah. they melt down, they're laughing, they're nervous. And I say, you know, imagine if that last experience was a rape. And you're not just telling it to one person. You're talking to an entire jury, a judge the man or woman that did this to you, an entire gallery of the public. Can you imagine how that must feel to walk around with that panic at the top of your chest that entire time? And it doesn't go away. That's what we're asking victims to do every single time. And so you can kind of start to imagine not everybody is going to do that. And that's all right. So grant some grace for those who who don't want to go all the way through the system because it is unforgiving. Um, I was on the stand for three hours. It was horrendous. I think for as much as I remember, I've blocked some parts of it. Um, I told you about that, that competitive attitude. Mm -hmm. And um, on top of that, I'm also very sarcastic. <laughs> and a little bit of that started to bleed through when I was starting to get real pissed at the defense <laughs> attorney. Um, no shame in that game. And I got to take a break and just kind of compose myself. And the DA is like, okay, you're doing great. Just, just keep going. Um, once the defense was done, they did what's called a redirect. So they're able to clear up a lot of the the questions that the defense tries to lodge at the witness and, you know, kill their credibility by either conflicting statements or questioning things. And really that's all they're trying to do. They're creating a shadow of a doubt in the jury's mind. And that's all they need to win because the burden of proof is on the prosecution in the state. And I'll tell you first, I got some pieces wrong. I got them out of order but the main thing that they are trying to do is maintain my credibility because I know what happened. I was there and it's okay to get flustered and forget some of those little pieces back and forth. So I always find it, I wouldn't say funny, but just sad when we can sit at home and Monday morning quarterback and kind of armchair detective it and say, Oh, well, they, they messed up what they said. And, you know, they said this at that one time and this on, on another occasion, cool. We're human. That's, mm -hmm. that's what our brains do so that we can make it through and understand in the smallest way possible, really extreme trauma. Um, once that, that testimony was done, I was able to sit in the courtroom in the front of that courtroom with my parents, um, which is something I hadn't been able to do before because the perpetrator's mother was in that courtroom trying to pick out who I was every single time. And thankfully, my entire sorority was there every single time. And so I would sit amongst them so that I couldn't be picked out. Mm. 
Um, and that was the first time that I was like, nope, this is, I am standing here in, in the truth and you're not going to shake me anymore. What are your feelings of the sentence that was handed down? (sighs) When we heard that, that verdict, that was the first time that I really was able to breathe. And I, for my life, I will spend trying to find the appropriate words for the weight that was lifted off of, off of my mind, my body. It felt like a full on physical experience. Um, I remember that as soon as he was taken out of the courtroom, I ran up and just hugged the the DA that had been the prosecutor on this whole thing. And I was just overwhelming gratitude to everyone who had made this possible because it's so seldom that they're held accountable for what they've done. And we knew that he was picking out his next victim when he was arrested. We knew that he had the potential um, to be a serial rapist that likely would have escalated to sexual homicides in between um, in Colorado, we do sex offender evaluations and there was a three month window from June of 2007 when we had the trial to the sentencing hearing. And in that amount of time, they meet with a lot of um, psychologists and things like that. So they're assessing risk so that when they um, inform the judge of the conviction, number one, that's the first part, but then they do this um, sexual specific evaluation, they can properly inform a judge and later um, parole boards about what the threat risk is to the community. And he was extremely high. They have four axes that you used to have to hit. And it may have changed in the last couple of years, but I know that they added one in 2012 because my attacker hit three out of these four that would label him as a sexually violent predator. They added one in 2012, which was afterwards. So he would have been labeled that if he would have been sentenced at that time. And that that specific criteria was that it was either a stranger or someone who creates a relationship with the intention of sexual assault, molestation, et cetera. And knowing, knowing that piece and that he was put away on what we thought was the first one, because they never connected any other cases was relieving. Um, I was prepped before we went into that sentencing hearing that, you know, you're probably not going to get the maximum sentence. They try to strike it a balance somewhere in the middle so that it doesn't get turned over on appeals. And knowing that going into it really helped my mindset, because if I would have heard 12 years for burglary, 12 to life for sex assault, I would have been furious. But knowing they're doing that with the indeterminate life sentence, which we have in Colorado for these level of felonies, then he's going to stay there and it's assessed to up to a life sentence. So I was appropriately prepped. And I think that's something that everyone can take away, like manage your, your survivor, your support systems um, expectations. So they're not going in thinking, I want the maximum sentence. And then they're disappointed when actually this is a really good sentence. And it upheld all three levels of appeals that he was able to do. What I didn't like, (laughs) um, because I was happy with that is that in 2019, I got my first form letter out of the blue in my email that, hey, he's being considered for community corrections. And so we have started the appellate process. um, or I'm sorry, we have started the parole process. I have to go every six months um, at some point. Sorry, let me back up. I have to go right now every other year 
to a parole hearing to restate why he should not be released um, and listen to the criteria for why he should. And at that first hearing, it was January of 2020 before everything shut down. Um, we went to this hearing. It was my parents, um, Michael, my roommates, um, one appeared by phone, one in person and our parents, just like it was in court. And we all stood there and had to talk about this over again and why it was so important that he stay incarcerated. The victim witness experience was not at all um, what it had been in the criminal justice experience. I did not feel prepped. I did not feel um, I feel I felt heard, but I didn't feel uh, like victims have the weight or the voice once you once you reach that conviction, once they're put away. After that, it becomes very uh, sentencing reform and offender rehabilitation. Well, the problem was he had not done one day of rehabilitative therapy in those years that he had already been there and he's already trying to get released. So um, there's a lot of changes that need to be made. That's something that I quickly realized and know what I have a voice. I'm going to use that voice to help other people who are disadvantaged, who wouldn't know to speak out or wouldn't have the, the platform of the connection because it's not just me going through this. And usually we suffer in silence. So I jumped on that immediately um, and started talking to legislature, the legislators that were running some uh, bills that would have would have changed the the outcome. They, it, he could have been released without any rehabilitation. Um, it was it, it has become even presently something I'm very passionate about and I'm not going away. Listeners, let me read off some statistics for you. The status of sexual assault crimes, according to RAIN, which is the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network. Out of 1,000 sexual assaults, 975 walk free. That's right, 975. Only 310 are reported, 50 lead to an arrest, 28 to a felony conviction, and only 25 are incarcerated. Talking about actual rape, it's not the number of sexual assaults themselves. Because if you look at another stat, it'll tell you that typically offenders are going on to five and six, on average, victims in their lifetime. It, the, the numbers are sickening. Right. And this, there has to be, you know, we talk about we have this terrible problem in our country about gun control and guns. But you don't hear about this. And this is why I wanted to have you on the show. This is why I want to get awareness to this. Listeners, I'm going to put links in the show notes to Kimberly's website and some other links for you. I want you to get involved in this because these numbers are absolutely atrocious to me that 975 are walking free. That It should be the opposite way around. It should be completely reversed. And somebody that's gone through it, what is your feeling on how the justice system should work in this? I'm extremely lucky in that regard. My case is a shining example of what happens when the justice system works the way that it should. But let's not forget that I am a middle class, white, educated woman with an articulate voice, connections, and a wonderful support system and access to therapy. All of those things together are the way that they should work. But the likelihood of disadvantaged populations being assaulted are much higher than even for me. And when you look at 
you know, our LGBTQ plus community, they are at a higher likelihood of experiencing assaults at some point in their life. If you experience childhood sexual assault, you are twice as likely to be sexually assaulted again as an adult. And it's funny that you brought up the, um, the gun control conversation, especially in the wake of these mass shootings. I don't want to go down this rabbit hole, but what I will tell you that I hope is becoming more and more publicized as we don't talk about the actual shooters and we don't publicize their names. All of these have one thing in common, and it is the misogyny and violence that is centered on women and children in these shooters. So if you want to start addressing the root problem of all of these things, look at domestic violence, look at assault, look at the way that we internalize, say it, misogyny. And you know what? I am a big fan of masculinity and talking about these things. I mean, you grow up in the sports world. Masculinity is insanely important. And some of the biggest, roughest tumble guys also understand that with that power, you are at you're in a position where you need to protect the people in your life. You need to not only protect the women, the children that are at a physical disadvantage, but you need to stand up to the people that are right beside you stand up to other men because no one is stopping these people. And that's who they're, they're going to listen to these shooters, abusers, domestic violence offenders. They don't give a crap what someone like me says. They care more about what men say. And that's who needs to be speaking out on this more so than anyone. I want to now bring up in 2016, when you were able to question president Obama during a live telecast of Anderson Cooper's 360 on CNN on gun policy. Mm -hmm. How did president Obama respond to your story and your question? So this is, um, this has been a funny point of contention, especially now that, you know, I, I'm speaking to large platforms. I do a lot of conversations in university settings and places that are typically very uh, pro gun control. And I I like to point this out because we get to coexist. I am no stranger to that conversation. And I actually felt that while he was dismissive of my question on that CNN town hall, he was also really compassionate. So he came right up to me in the middle of the commercial and is talking to me about the kids and such. And it's not as if he wasn't human, but we have different policy standpoints and we can still respect one another. I think he was a really good president. We don't have to agree on those policies. Um, But that sparked a huge debate and put me in a spotlight that I had never intended. But at the same time, I'm like, okay, this is a group that I normally wouldn't talk to that also really needs to hear about sex assault. They need to hear about advocacy. They need to hear about best practices. They need to hear about start by believing. And so some of the people that I was able to connect with and talk about had never had these open conversations. And so it was almost like, Hey, my, I concealed carry on my campus because I was sexually assaulted and like, it's still a really big issue for me. It was almost like a gateway to, to have those really tough conversations with people who otherwise wouldn't listen to someone like me. You had mentioned before about an elder lady who had come forward after you had mentioned your name. How many cases are you aware of that you've affected people since you've been speaking? I'm sure it's got to be a high number now. Um, I, I have no idea. I just recently 
Um, as of last year, a friend of mine who does the same line of work told me to create a little, um, an album on my phone so that when I get these messages, just put them there for a rainy day when I'm feeling beat down and, and hurt. And like, I need to quit to read those and the impact that they've had. And, um, it's been a lot <laughs> Good. and every single one, um, through advocacy training. And I worked at the DA's office for many years and through all of that, I know that I need to protect my personal boundaries so that if I'm taking on someone else's trauma and bearing witness to that, that I'm also taking care of myself. I don't always get to respond to every single message, but you can rest assured that I read them all. Um, a couple big highlights for me. I had spoken at a conference in 2017, I think, um, did my, my sex assault keynote the next year. I went to the same conference and and did another keynote and a gal came up to me afterwards and she's like, I just wanted to be able to thank you because I heard you speak last year. I was assaulted then in the fall and I knew what was happening to me at that time because I heard you. And so I reported it and I'm about to go to trial. And as far as I know, she, um, that was a positive outcome for her. Um, the, the wildest one that I do have permission to speak about, I don't like to retell other people's stories. They're not my stories to share unless I have express permission. Um, and I think keeping those stories intact and asking the survivors themselves, not other people, what they might think about it is honoring what we go through and our voices in the aftermath. Um, and this person gave me permission to, to speak, but I started posting a lot of videos on TikTok, and one of them was a clip of the interrogation that they did the day that my attacker was arrested. Um, I, I think it was like a 60 second clip or something like that. And a gal reached out via email and said, I have been waiting a really long time to, to say this, but um, I was a victim of his as a teenager, um, had an insane amount of detail stuff that's not released to the public that, that we know from the case. And she's like, I have been terrified to reach out to you. Uh, but I just, I thought you should know. And I wrote her back and I'm like, I'm processing all of this, but I want you to know, I believe you. And and she said, that's, I've waited so many years to hear that. And that's, I was scared. You wouldn't believe me. It's the power of those words. I believe you. It changes the trajectory of these survivors and our journeys to healing and whether or not we can speak up. So I would encourage all of your listeners to check out the start by believing campaign. I always put it in my, my social media stuff, but in Violence Against Women International does a ton of training and community outreach, especially for first responders that are dealing with people like me on the worst day of our life. How can we better serve this population so that we set them up not only to heal, but to seek crisis services, to come forward and to be that person who sees a case all the way through so that that number that you that you quoted in that stat gets a little bit better. We all have the power to do that. And it's standing up to people who are, who are victimizing women um, predominantly and other men. And it's starting by believing it's that easy. You don't have to have the answers, but I see you, I hear you, and I believe you. And that changes a survivor's world. Mm -hmm. So um, this, this, I will call her a survivor now, um, is an incredible person. She actually lives uh, fairly close to me now and is willing to start speaking to make sure that he stays in prison. That is awesome. 
from talking and speaking to groups as long as you've been doing it now, does it help you face this head on and make you feel like you have more control of it by chance? Yeah, it's kind of free therapy. Thank you for this. (laughs) (laughs) Um, it, It does. And I think part of it is that when I first spoke, it wasn't in a, hey, come give a speech sort of sort of feel. It was right after we got the conviction, but before sentencing and the University of Northern Colorado, like most universities, has a women's resource center and a sex assault awareness program that ours has peer advocates. So they're on call. Um, They usually do a year where they take on call shifts and they do a training before school starts. They were doing this training and I had been working with the women's resource center, you know, for my own stuff and trying to get through court while also being a student. And I sat at this conference table and there were nine other victims. And um, I asked the victim witness coordinator from the DA's office to come with me. And I sat there and much like this, I just, I told him what happened. Um, All of the, I I wouldn't say that not the gory details about the case itself, but it's all the things that happened afterwards that are most important to understand. We are really caught up in consuming trauma I call it trauma porn, but it's, you know, that that true crime genre that everybody's so obsessed with. Listen to the survivors, listen to ethical true crime consumption, listen to the things that happen afterwards and how you can make an impact. If there's no call to action except, hey, by the way, buy my book where I'm going to talk about all these other stories. <laughs> that's a problem. You want to have those those appropriate calls to action, those people that are out there doing the work. How can you support them? Um, look for those kind of creators. Those are the ones that you should gravitate towards um, and vote with your listens. So as I sat there and talked about it, you know, it was a lot. Well, how did it feel in school or what were some things that, that we can do to help not tell us more about like what the conversation was. Cause yeah. you, um, people get that look in their eye and it's like a little <laughs> back away. <laughs> um, but I knew that if they asked me something that I wasn't hundred percent comfortable answering, I needed to work on it in therapy. And that's how I've gotten to this point is standing up and taking no shame and no guilt away from this, except for, Hey, this is something that happened to me. And then I choose what happens after the fact has been really helpful Um, I don't, I don't feel like I need to hide any parts of it because I I survived it. I made it through. And it, even if I would have waited years to talk about it, it still wouldn't have been my fault. Even if I wouldn't have reported, it wouldn't have been my fault. And I shouldn't have to feel shame about that. So that combined with a lot of therapy combined with a fantastic supportive family and now husband and kids has just really set me up. Um, to be a voice for other people until they find their own. As I said earlier, he picked the wrong woman in 2006. And it's a horrific day, but in a weird kind of way, it's almost like it's a good thing he picked you because you put him behind bars where he belongs to be. And hopefully this guy never sees the light of day and he never comes out and you guys keep him behind bars. Let's, Let's wrap up with here and go something a little bit lighter. Life today. <laughs> I see you enjoy running. I'm a runner. I like to run. I don't enjoy it at all. Are you kidding me? It's awful. <laughs> just want pancakes. <laughs> so do you run just for release? Why do you run? I run so that I can keep up with my kids without like completely 
feeling like crap. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, really, I can't believe somebody's not chasing me. Recovering athlete, I think is the best way to put it. I played like very low level stuff, like intramurals in college, but I didn't go on to be like a D one or two athlete. Um, I was a four sport athlete in high school and I love it. And I've always maintained that team mindset mentality and everything. And so it's really hard for me to be like, I need to just go out and run for me. I'm like, there's no one to <laughs> eat here except myself and blah. so um i will say the motivation part is tough but i've um i mean i've dabbled in and lifting and a bunch of different things but basically the thing that i love the most still is volleyball mm. um i started co- coaching my daughter's team and i found very quickly i'm like oh i can just i can play with you guys like this is this is play time and like <laughs> i can show you how to serve and be on the other side like Bumping these, that's the kind of physical movement that I need for my body to feel my best. And I hate that. Oh, I hate it. It's like, <laughs> oh, you mean to tell me that not napping and eating all the gluten that I want is going to make me feel better? This is <laughs> dumb. I hate it so much. But yes, that's uh, <laughs> that's sadly one of the things that I have to do. Um, I do a lot of my advocacy work on social media. Um, as my kids are getting older now, I'm going to start traveling again. I just joined an organization called Greek University. So we do a lot of higher ed and uh, Greek life trainings. A lot of my stuff is about sisterhood and how sorority members can help their their fellow sister um, get through these because a lot of the times people won't disclose, but the signs are there and being able to recognize those and approach them with that start by believing attitude um, can can change the course of of a college um, a college sisterhood and their college journey. And then um, as much as I love that, I, I also love being involved just with any kind of video production. That's sort of my like fun, fun thing. So TikTok was right up my alley, um, happily married. And uh, I I have a feeling you're going to ask me about that. <laughs> no, I actually wasn't. I was, I was oh, not, gonna I was actually it, huh? not going to bring it up because <laughs> I'm sure you've told the story a hundred times. If you want to tell it about how you met your husband, go ahead. You know, I, um, I actually just started telling it not too long ago. I mean, everybody that knows us knows, but like, it wasn't part that we included in our conversation. So, um, when I walked into the district attorney's office to have my first meeting and I was with my parents and the detective, um, we walk into the conference room, meet the victim witness coordinator and the prosecutors that were going to be working my case. And I had no idea at that time. I was meeting my future husband. So that's uh, how we met. Sounds weird when you put it like that, but we didn't start dating until, you know, 10 years afterwards. Um, Stayed friends, lost touch for a little while. Then we ended up working together and we give our joint presentation, which is more of like a 400 level as opposed to 100 um, on successful prosecutions and advocacy. Um, A lot of times for other prosecutors or law enforcement or victim advocates across the country. Um, We've done that quite a few times, but yeah, it was, uh, we have a wonderful blended family and uh, got married finally in 2018 and it's it's really wonderful. Our pillow talk is real messed up. He's, <laughs> he's our district attorney now in, in Weld County, still doing this line of work. It's the only thing he's ever wanted to do was seek justice for victims and to have our principles um, that guide not just us as people, but as parents align in such a way that is often hard to find is really rewarding. And I'm just, I hate how it happened, but I'm so happy that this came from a terrible situation. Kimberly, keep spreading the word. 
Keep being an advocate. I know you will. Keep helping people. Thank you so much for telling your story and coming on Before the Lights. I really appreciate this. Yeah, thank you so much for having me and for speaking out. And I will say again, if you can, I'd love to see um, support for in violence against women and start by believing. I will be happy to share those links, um, but do what you can and make sure that you tell the people in your life uh, how much you care for them and that you're here for them and believe them. With that, listeners, please follow me on Instagram at Before the Lights Podcast and follow, rate, and review the show. Five stars, nice comments are always appreciated. Thank you for listening to Before the Lights. I'm Tommy Canale. And until next time, everyone, I salute a chin chin. Chin chin.